Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett. I'm the host of this show. Since 2013, I'm the host of this show. Isn't that crazy? We've been doing this uh, that long. The guest today, it's a big guest. Well, they're all big guests, but Carl June. Why is he a big guest? Because he's a pioneer in CAR T-cell therapy. He's also a co-founder of Team Unity Therapeutics, and he runs the June Lab out of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, we talked about how the Vietnam War disrupted his college plans, sent him into the Navy. We talked about um, how the death of his wife actually caused him to look more closely at translational research. This is the second straight guest that has talked about navigating the oceans by the stars, just by chance. Craig Mello talked about that too in uh, the episode before this. Carl and I talked about if you're doing work that is outside the box, as he said, it's going to be hard to find funding. And we talked about um, saving Emily Whitehead's life, what that meant to him. And her, obviously. That's that's in this podcast, too. I don't know if there's anything else you need to know. Uh, I'll have some housekeeping things at the end. But for now, here it is, your first Rounders podcast with Carl June. Listen. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Up. Oh, you're in the office. Yeah, I am. Too. I come in a couple of days, two days a week right now. I saw that um, you just the won the, the Sanford Lorraine Cross Award. Yeah, it was a huge deal. Um, it's a huge deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were up. I mean, so I went, you know, with my wife up to, uh, there were three finalists, and we went up to uh, South Dakota, Sioux City. It actually had snow flurries the first day there. It was a real adventure, so I could say that. So you didn't know, you knew that you were a finalist, but you didn't know who was going to win until they yeah, announced it. No, and I mean, and this thing was really protracted because uh, because of COVID. I mean, it was scheduled for last February, and then they tried to do it in August, and but it turned, turned, you know, it was impossible. So it ended up being delayed by a year. That's what so, I wondered. I, I saw that you, it was actually in person. Yeah, yeah. So we had no idea, and it was like, uh, an, you know, an Academy Award they pull out of an envelope. I mean, we had to go through... <laughs> There was a scientific board and then there was their international board. I mean, we didn't know, you know, there were the three finalists all went there and then they had this evening event and then, uh, and I got announced as, as being selected. So this, when the, for the ceremony was, was there an audience? Was there like it normally? Yeah. And yeah, but what they did, they screened everyone either had to be vaccinated or, and like my wife is just getting her. So they screened her on arrival. Uh Uh-huh. And so it was a, that's, they delayed it until they could have a live audience. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I thought it was great. Well, thanks. Yeah. So uh, it it was, (laughs) it was nice to get, you know, first time going on TSA in quite a while. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I haven't, it's been over a year for me. Um, So, so I wanted, so you you actually probably get to New York a fair amount. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 We could have done this in person if we waited maybe another six months or so, but. But um, so listen, I, I looked at your some of your background and your research, and I, I had this feeling that pr- probably as you were growing up, you probably thought you were going to be a physician more than a researcher. Am I? Is that true? Uh, you know, I'll give you actually. You know, I grew up uh, like five years before the uh, computer revolution, and I in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh-huh. my dad was a chemical engineer. And I had thought that's, and it's all, my whole family had done things like that. And so I had, I applied and got accepted to Caltech and to Stanford and Berkeley from where I lived. And then I got a draft number that uh, is Vietnam War. I graduated in high school in 71. Oh, 71. Okay. Yeah. So I ended up going into the Navy where, you know, for to stay out of the rice patch, I went to the Navy, Naval Academy. And we're on the East Coast, and, and and then the war got over in 
74, really, and then graduated. And the Navy started a pre-med program. And I had done things that had, you know, biology experiments just out of natural curiosity and stuff in high school, but I, no one in my family had ever been a physician. So I had no clue. I decided to, because I went into the Navy thinking I would just, I would go into the nuclear power program for about oh. five years oh, I and see. get out. Because I had a five-year obligation to pay back from the Naval Academy. And then it turned out, I mean, they paid for medical school. So I got interested in that. And eight people out of my class. The rest of them went on the submarines and Marines oh, and all that stuff. Oh, okay. I was the Naval Academy. You know, it's your full-time obligation in the Navy then for five years to pay back the, you know, I got a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry. Yeah. And then... Uh, so then I ended up saying, well, this sounds pretty cool, the medical, because it wasn't even their brochures and stuff like that, that they had a pre-med and then I could get into medical. So, so I went straight to medical school from college and then, you know, it's been a journey. And then initially I couldn't do research. You know, I got right. trained in, in leukemia all because the Navy had reactors and they were worried about limited, you know, radiation exposures. Uh, and so I, I learned bone marrow transplantation in the Fred Hutchinson. Before you realized that the draft was going to be a problem, did you think that you want to be a physician then or no? You, you were thinking, no. oh, oh, no. And but ba they never had back then these kind of things of what are your real interests in? And, yeah. you know, and, and I, you know, I was on the calculus club and all that. And I liked math and science. But but I did have I mean, in retro I just never thought of maybe I should go be a physician because no one had done that in that family, but I had a couple of experience in, in high school and under, you know, where physicians really helped me. Like I broke my arm badly a couple of times and a couple of times. And, yeah. I got in a fight in fifth grade and, and my oh arm my was, was bent. I mean, I literally had to have it set by an orthopedic surgeon. And oh my God. I remember what that was like. And then I, you know, um, uh, but and I had done experiments. I actually bought mice, rats, and dissected them. I, my, I got trichloroethylene from my mother's cleaning fluid and used that as an anesthetic and did lot survival surgery on rats when I was in seventh or eighth grade just because I, I, was, I was interested, but I didn't think I'd be a, anything to do with research. But no, no, these, so it's first off, this fight in fifth grade sounds terribly vicious for breaking an arm. I mean, how, well, how, you know what happened actually? So this guy had ripped my jacket. Yeah. And we had a kind of ongoing thing going. And then what happened? So I started chasing him and I caught him, but then he bent out and I flipped over him and there was a hole and I, I fell into the hole and then bridged across and it broke my arm. Oh my God. Oh yeah. It sounds so terrible. that was, right. that's just what happened. I mean, that was yeah. fifth grade. And yeah. then, um, and I broke it twice. I mean, three months at a cast, he said, you know, you can't do anything. Wear it in a sling for like six weeks. The very next day, I broke my arm again playing soccer. I mean, I completely, oh. my mom was so pissed off. I imagine. <laughs> so so anyway, for a whole year, I was in a cat. But anyway. But um, the, so the mice thing, is anybody overseeing you with that? How did your mom no. knows you're taking the chemicals? You just did that all on your own. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, no, she fought, she let me do it. I went, you know, went to a store and bought these <laughs> animals completely unsanctioned yeah i just wanted to see because i'd had then the surgery on my arm so i wanted to see could i do that myself yeah and yeah. so i got my friend who was in you know we made gauze balls and they you know uh, cotton balls stuck on the mice <laughs> and put them asleep and it worked yeah. i mean the thing is 
I mean, we got them, we did, uh, you know, the abdominal laparotomy and then so I sewed it back up. And then what I found, I put them back in a cage. We had these mice walking around after their gentle anesthetic. And then what happened was the other, the mice would, they chewed each other open. Oh, oh. You know, because I didn't know you have to put them in separate cages. Ah. Uh. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, I learned stuff you would never be able to do under sanctioning with our current stuff. And then, yeah. but in high school or actually eighth, seventh grade, I had a biology teacher named Mr. Gary Passy, and he um, saw I was really interested in, you know, biology. And so, and so I, I actually went to some college classes when I was in high school because okay. we had a college next to us. So I was, I mean, I went to public schools and all that. And then, yeah. but was interested in that, but no one ever looked career counseling, stuff like that. So I went into, I was going to Stanford thinking I was going to be a, you know, do chemical engineering like my dad. And then, yeah. then this thing with a Navy turned up and I had a complete about face in what I did career wise. But the, so you're headed to Stanford. You, that was your choice of the three that you got accepted in or something. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was, yeah. yeah. Although I was the oldest of five kids, you know, and I was worried about my parents paying tuition, you know, but right. that's where I was going to go. And then, and I which, say which that, would have that would have given you a deferment, right, for the draft? No, at that in high school there, nineteen seventy one, the only deferment you got was a Bill Clinton thing of leaving the country. Oh right, okay. Or or you have to be not physically qualified. I see. I see. And, okay. And I'm I played on a high school football team. I'm in their high school hall of fame there, and I'll, oh. so I was I was more interested in sports actually then. And, uh, but so anyway, this career thing is you make choices in different ways. And I, you know, I never would have forecast that I would end up doing medical research when I was in high school. So, so, the, okay, you go to the Navy and you're thinking there that you'll just get an undergraduate degree kind of in, in a science. Uh, in chemistry, in chemistry. chemistry, that's what I did. It was sciences. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, and then, and then you then, came across the pre-med. And yeah, and the most interesting thing clearly in the Navy from my point was nuclear reactors. So I spent a whole summer in Pearl Harbor on a nuclear submarine. Oh, wow. That, that's part of the Naval Academy. And it was amazing. I mean, that was like space shot stuff. Yeah. You know, they had GPS before anyone else did. I mean, very high precision science. And that was actually really, I learned how to do navigation with a sextant and looking at the stars. Oh, yeah. You know, before you had this GPS stuff. And then, uh, and so it was really fun. We were on the this nuclear submarine where, where the main issue at that point after post Vietnam was the Cold War with Russia. Yeah. And it was all this Tom Clancy stuff. I got to see that firsthand. And it, and it was really interesting. Yeah. You thought that might be the way to go then. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I had five years that I had to stay in the Navy yeah. to pay back. And so I thought I was going to go. And I, you know, inter, uh, Hyman Rickover ran the nuclear Navy. I thought that's what I would do. And, and then get out and who knows what your career would be. But it right. turned out they had this pre med thing, which I, applied for and then my whole career took a you know i, I got into med and initially i thought i was going to be a physician just i mean a, which i am but i mean i thought i was going to take care of patients right right so the the there's a pre-med program that then fed you into baylor you, you went to baylor yeah for and i i could i was not allowed by the way this is very in that in the post-vietnam time i i couldn't get into harvard i mean i was the number one graduate at, from the naval academy and i uh could have gone anywhere with the grades I had, but Harvard wouldn't let me in because, what, what, what's this, what's well, they would. So the problem was the Navy wouldn't let me go to Harvard because um, of the, during the Vietnam War, 
Harvard had thrown the ROTC people off campus. Aha. Uh-huh. And so there was a tit for tat thing. I see. And, and so, so I had a full scholarship to go every, anywhere I want, wanted when I graduated, you know, with a bachelor of science from the Naval Academy for medicine. And then I had to pay back the Navy then both for my uh, undergraduate as for, and medical school. So I went okay. to Baylor because my dad had moved from Berkeley, you know, uh, in his, he was a, you know, chemist for uh, shell development and they moved all the research from, from Berkeley. It actually became, um, uh, the, the building he was in became the first gene therapy area in Berkeley. It was, I forgot, they make DNA, uh, uh-huh. part when, anyway, he, he moved down while I was in, uh, in the Naval Academy, he moved to, uh, to Houston with shell. Shell and wanted then, everybody in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. consolidate the R and D. He was a polymer chemist. And, and then, so then, um, so I went there The Baylor was a local medical school. I went there and it turned out to be great medical great school. Yeah. 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 And, and you know what happened to me there? So there I, I thought I was going to be a, you know, my mom had lupus, some autoimmune diseases. And I thought, you know, in the medicals that I would do become going to medicine. But then I graduated in three years. It, it turned and I thought I'd have less obligation. But the Navy said, no, you know, if, as long as you get the MD, then you have a, a seven year payback, which oh. gave me a 12 year payback for undergraduate medical school. And so then I, I had shown some interest in lab research and a guy who was doing immunology and rheumatology stuff. I got, I went to the world health organization for a year to do graduate studies in Geneva. And there, my first papers were in malaria and I I got really fascinated with immune system. So, but that was, that was research that wasn't seeing patients or anything. No, right. I mean, in fact, cause you, everyone in, I was in Geneva, everyone spoke French and to speak, see patients yet. I couldn't speak French. Oh, I see. Yeah. And I had some really interesting, so I, I took care of, I mean, I had mice with malaria, published uh, three or four papers in medical school then. And then, then, you know, but never got it at PhD. The Navy didn't care about that and wouldn't yeah. let me. And so I had that a full year in the lab from my last year of medical school, then graduated and got, you know, the Navy then trained me in bone marrow transplants. But that, that year in Geneva was not, that doesn't count as a year of your payback. That's still. No, it was, it counted to them as, I mean, they paid for me and everything, but it counted okay. as year of medical school. So and now you, so, you've got 12 you know, years after this. Yeah. Okay. And that, that completely changed my life. I was so lucky in that, um, you know, the Navy funded research and there were, you know, mostly the people who were what I was, which was an MD, got put on the ships or whatever, seeing pay. They let me stay in a lab and it was right across from the NIH building 10 in Bethesda. And I came back at age 31 with only two years of lab experience and had my own lab. And I did a lot of biochemistry and signal transduction. And so I went from someone who, and I saw patients for one month a year you know, as a board certified internist and all. And but, so I went from someone who w- read clinical journals all the time to reading science and, and had, I just, I changed from a physician really to where my family called MD mouse doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and, That's funny. They, they, yeah, they don't see the value. It's like, he's working on mice. He's fixing mice yeah, as opposed and, to doing research. Right. So I didn't have any real formal, ter- I mean, I had two years in immunogenetics at the Hutch, the Fred Hutch and University of Washington, and did a lot, got interested in signal transduction. I saw T cells kill people, uh-huh. you know, in uh, graft versus host disease and transplants. 
And so I got really interested in the biology of how T cells get activated yep. and, and what else they can do. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so that's how I got into it. And, and then, so I had this lab and 12 years in the Navy. Can yeah, I ask sure. about that? You just said you were 31 and yeah. you're starting this lab. Like, were you on, were you fully prepared for that? Or did they just say, whatever, Carl, we're I mean, just going to give you they, the space. They had a, they gave me the space and the Navy had, so this is what it's again. The Navy only could fund two kinds of research. Uh, by con congressional, because the NCI through congressional direct appropriations funds all the cancer research. So yep. I was at that point a board, board certified medical oncologist. But the only research I could do was either combat casualty care, which was basically, you know, traumatic brain injury or arms. In the field and stuff, right. Yeah. Or infectious disease. So huh. I spent some, I published papers in malaria and then AIDS came along. And I started working on HIV AIDS and we did our, the first CAR T cell trials in Bethesda before any of the stuff came along with what I've done in leukemia. I treated patients with AIDS with CAR T cells in Bethesda. That you'd reprogrammed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know this. I didn't know yeah, this. We, we, so yeah, and we, I published a paper that's cited thousands of times in 2012 where we looked at these patients. So they got what we would now call first generation CAR targeting the the envelope protein of, of HIV. Yeah. And those and it had an antiviral effect. And it the CAR T cells survived for 10 years in the patients, at least, which we showed that with no side effects. And uh, that, it, but then, you know, what happened in HIV was um, a couple of things, you know, protease inhibitors came out, it became kind of like hypertension. It's a chronic disease with, with no curative therapy, but no one cared about CAR T cells anymore for HIV. Yeah. So when, what, what were you using to reprogram the T cells? We used know, a, a gamma retrovirus back then. Okay. So a mouse virus and with a MLV, you know, the mouse gamma retrovirus promoter. And then, so I had a lot of experience with that. And also I had several papers in science studying what HIV does to T cells as an immunosuppressant. Yep. And, 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 so it turned out by, uh, and I wasn't allowed to study cancer or leukemia while I was in the Navy. So I studied HIV intensively for about 10 years, had a lot of, you know, uh, publications. I worked some with Tony Fauci's group in oh, Bethesda yep. on, and I had funding from the NIH, you know, from NH, NIAID, the National Institute that Tony Fauci has to study HIV immunopathogenesis. And it turned out that was a huge break for me because so we ended up doing the first therapies in using a lentivirus, so the modified gut that Inder Verma had first made, you know, to study, you know, the you know third generation lentiviruses, mm -hmm. which are very safe and gutted. We used that in the first ever use in humans, and those were in patients who had HIV. And this is this is. Um... Got to be late '90s or something. No. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, our first trials in the car were started in 1997 with a gamma retrovirus. Yeah. And then I treated. Our, it was 2005 when we first published data using a HIV. It expressed an antisense to target the virus, and we we started we published that in PNS 2003, 2005, and then you know then uh, I got out. Uh, I had moved from Bethesda to Penn. In, in 2001, I started my lab up here in Philadelphia. Yeah. Well, and, let, let's let's talk about that. Okay. How did you? So finally, you your 12 years are up. You've done your 12 years of you know yeah. service, paying back the Navy. 
And then uh, I guess you could have probably stayed if you wanted to. Yeah, I actually got asked if I wanted to be promoted to be an admiral. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you go into this administrative stuff. And I said, yeah. no, I want to keep a lab. And uh, and so I retired from the Navy, which is great. It gives me like one tuition a year for my kids in college. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And then, uh, and, you know, I moved to Penn in, uh, you know, so I could start working also on leukemia and cancer with a car, you know. How did you know, how did you come across that job? Were you looking well, only at Penn I, or were you? It, it's actually more, I'll tell you the, the real details. So my wife, first wife got diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 1996. And I was still in Navy. I was, uh, you know, as high as you can go without being an admiral. Yeah. And she went through all, I took care of her for four, five and a half years. And then, you know, she passed away in 2001. Ah, I'm sorry. And that really, well, listen, I'm now remarried and I got kids from my second wife and we were just came back from this thing in South Dakota with down this award thing. So it was a huge, that really, I, you know, I can tell you it was a huge motivator in my career to make me look more at translation and, and, um, and then that cancer. So I, I was, you know, I'm an oncologist, but I, you know, I stopped seeing patients and, you know, I took care of her for five years and, um, I learned about all I had, I had, you know, this way before immuno-oncology became a big deal, but I had talked to Jim Allison about his mouse experiments and I wanted to be able to give my wife vaccine prime T cells uh-huh. and anti-CTLA-4, which was nowhere close to FDA approval at that point. And I found out I couldn't get the antibody out of Bristol-Myers. I mean, I was pissed off beyond belief. You know, it required INDs, and I was I was prepared and able to do that with, and I had made vaccines like Glendranoff had done with my wife's ovarian cancer cells. Oh, okay. And all that. So I was involved in doing immunotherapy for my wife on you know in the background, and found out how hard it is you know, to get new agents into the clinic. That gave me a huge advantage when I actually started making what became Kim Raya, that no right. cells. You, you realized, I mean, I'm, this is kind of a generalization, but it isn't as easy as just sort of like what you've done with the mice. I want to do this. Uh, I want to try this. Oh, yeah. I found out how, so I wrote, you know, the first real IND to the FDA on giving gene modified T cells. It was, you know, with all kinds of mouse data, lentiviral vectors and all that. And, you know, that, you know, all that was done by 2009. But my wife's experience gave me a huge advantage, I think. And and the fact that I'd been in the Navy and done all this work with Lenny Barl Vectors. So, yeah. so I moved to Penn in, 19, in two, 1999. She died in 2001. And then um, I, you know, you know all I, the, I started, I switched from HIV to cancer therapy. Can I ask about that? I've talked to other physicians in this way who, are treating people all the time and able to save people all the time. And then something happens in their own home, whether it's their child or their spouse, and they can't, you know, they're a healer and they can't fix it. And that has to be the most frustrating Uh, thing in the world. uh, Yeah, let me tell you. So, uh, you know, my wife, we had three young kids at that point. And um, so she had all kinds of motivation to go through standard. The chemotherapy that I had given myself to patients as a physician back at the Brad Hutchinson Cancer Center where I did bone marrow transplant, uh-huh. I had no idea the toxicity and, you know, the, I mean, we, we would see, you know, hair fallout and all that, but I had the mucositis, your mouth falling apart yeah. and all this. I watched that firsthand on the other side of the bed, you know, yeah. with my wife. So, oh. 
seeing that was a, a shock at, you know, and taking care of her with those, I had no idea because the physicians normally write the orders and all that, and then nurses and stuff and the patient's experience. But I witnessed it then. It gave a, you know, and it's still the true that today for a lot of forms of leukemia and, and all that, that the treatments are the same as when I was in medical school. And they're just brutal. They look, I mean, they're, I understand oh. like this could, this could drive you to think there has to be a better way that isn't so brutal on the patient to treat these. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nitrogen mustard, you know, used in you know, trench warfare was discovered because they found out that people who didn't die immediately with lung damage ended up getting lymphopenic. So they found out it had this, that mustard itself. And then mustard was in the first, all they did was alkylate so that you could give it IV yeah. instead of a, as a gas. That's part of the compound of the first, you know, things that were uh, used for treating leukemia. Yeah. A completely yeah. nonspecific, horrible agent. And my wife got a busulfan is horrible. And that's used, you know, it has, you know, the therapeutic index is tiny between killing you versus exactly, and, you know, and all yeah. that. So, so anyway, it's that, that, that did have a huge motivational effect on me. So then you're, you're at, you're at Penn, you set up a lab. Yeah. yeah. And this is, this is 20 years ago almost now, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. Exactly. 20 years, basically. Yeah. Okay. So then how do you start, you, you set your lab up. How do you start putting it together? You know, what are you working on? How do you get your grad students? Yeah. So it was, I had, I was only one in the Navy to have an R01 grant. So back, you know, I had had that on how to grow T cells. Yeah. And that was a couple of papers in science. And we found out that CD28 was a very potent growth factor. Yep. And so I'd been studying these co-stimulatory domains and I, and four uh, of my senior lab people moved from Bethesda here to Penn. Oh, okay. That's, and, that, that's how you got started. Yeah. Yeah. And then I started getting, cause my lab before in Bethesda had been, had postdocs. So mm -hmm. now I started having both graduate students and postdocs and, and things really took off. I mean, I had one of my first graduate students and MD PhD students here at Penn was Marcella Mouse. Okay. Who's now associate professor at Harvard, yeah. you know, doing CAR T cell therapies, but her project was studying 401BB on T cells. And we found out that it, it was a really potent growth factor, you know, in addition to CD28. So we studied that one of them activates TRAF signaling pathways and the other, a lot of uh, um, NFAT and so on. So we found out how these pathways were different and what they shared, and then use those as CAR designs. Right. This is the you first know. step, sort of like, okay, yeah, I yeah. need to be able to grow T cells. How can we do it? We, if we take yeah. it from the patient, we can grow them and put them back. That was the first step, right? Yeah. And when I was in the Navy, you know, Bruce Levine came my lab from Hopkins. He was uh, a PhD in, in biology. And I had him start using, because I'd shown CD28 agonistic antibodies made T cells grow. Uh -huh. So then we found out it had this unexpected. This the truth of this experiment, which is two papers in science. We we started studying HIV uh, and what CD28 did there, and we found we could grow T cells from patients with um, HIV, and the virus never came out. We could when you normally grow T cells from HIV infected patients, a whole bunch of virus comes out, and then it kills the CD4 cells. Well, we and and so we normally would grow up you know, HIV infected volunteers to take their CD4 cells out, grow them, and then use that to make viral stocks and uh -huh. harvest the HIV pathogenic virus to use in our experiments. 
so Bruce joined my lab and um, I had been, I, we had used CD28 conjugated on the beads as a way to conveniently activate cells. Mm-hmm. And then the T cells were gross. So I said, Bruce, why don't you go make your own stock of HIV? So he got a couple of donors who had HIV AIDS and grew their T cells. And then three days later, when, when they're dividing the lot, you, um, you harvest a supernate and spin it down. And then now you have a viral stock and you measure P24 in there. Well, he did that and there was no virus. And I said, I literally got angry at him. So how can you, how can you screw that experiment up? You know? And so I went down and did it myself. And yeah, and no virus can. And so what we found out, and this was in science, was CD28 in, in like that actually transcriptionally shuts off the HIV co-receptor CCR5. Okay. And it activate. And if you use the other molecule, CTLA4, which is related to CD28, that turns it on and makes the cells sitting duck for HIV. So there's this yin-yang. T-cells can be made resistant to HIV depending on their co-stimulation pathway and or very sensitive and so that was a real interesting finding but it led to this culture system that both gilead and novartis use which is a mobilized cd28 on beads and the onr office of naval research owns the patents of that so when did you start thinking about um leukemias though well you know i was trained in leukemia in 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 the 1983 to 86 that's when i was in seattle Uh but i was not allowed to do research there as yep. I mentioned, yep. or in, in the Navy, because they only funded our infectious disease research. Yeah. So I started working on leukemia then as soon as I got to Penn. I see. Okay. Then you had your freedom to sort of investigate yeah. whatever you wanted to. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then so you somehow you're like, okay, well, we've got these CD19 as a target for B cells. Uh, can we can we reprogram these T cells to attack that? Yeah. And it began, I was initially um, studying using CD20, because that was rituximab. Yeah. And uh, um, but and Stan Merdell was working on that with Ollie Press, one of my fellows when I was training at the Hutch in Seattle. And Werner Brenchens and Mils- Michelle Sadeline, you know, working, you know, with their gamma retroviruses at Memorial Sun Kettering. And they, you know, they decided CD19, if you look at the expression, CD19 was probably a better target than CD20. So that's what we all, and in conjunction with the FDA, target where the first CAR T cells was C19. The drug industry had ignored it. Why? You know, Why do you think? Well, because Genentech had a big success with the rituximab, you know, targeting CD20 initially. And so they just stayed with that because of inertia. But CD19 uh, is actually a better target. Okay. It, it's brighter, more copies per cell, and, and it's expressed earlier in the lineage of B cells. Than CD20, but did you know, knowing that Genentech had sort of paved the way with the CD20? Did you have to convince people that this other target might be worth um, pursuing? Well, we so Ali, the the Hutch group actually did trials, and with Mike Jensen, who was then down at City of Hope, they actually did trials with the rituximab CD20-based cars. Uh-huh. And on the East Coast, Michelle Satellite and 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 my group at Penn, so Memorial and Penn, we targeted CD19. Okay. And the FDA had no real problem because we could, in preclinical models, show that leukemia cells express that. And there's a lot of genetic data that CD19, you know, is a lineage marker that was only on, only thought to be on B cells. And, um, and, but, you know, we just had a paper in Cell this last year. Uh, 
I want to go, I want to go back to this. Um, you starting these trials mm -hmm. and and talking to the FDA. So, but you you were not in a company, right? You're still at Penn. No. But were you partnered with Novartis at this point? No. So there was no industry. So in 2009, this, the, this is the honest to God. What happened was, um, so uh, the NCI never did fund my trial or the CAR. They funded, the, as I mentioned, NIAID yep. and HIV gene therapy. But, the, you know, there had been such a long, disappointing history in cancer immunotherapy that I could not get studies funded for CAR T cells in cancer. You know, it's way, you know, it's a completely different thing yet. But so, so you've, been, had, you've been applying for grants and not getting them. I couldn't. Yeah. But here's what happened. It was philanthropy. And it's a big message. You know, if you have something out of the box, uh, likely peer review may not fund it for a lot of reasons, you know, especially if there's Titan funding, like which happened. There's a contraction in NIH funding around 2008, 2009. And I actually yeah. had to fire a lot of people. I couldn't. And so in 2004, there was. Uh, a man named Edward Netter and his wife, Barbara, they decided, and they had uh, made a distinguished group of scientists, they had seen their daughter get breast cancer and taken apart by chemotherapy, like I had seen my wife. Right. So they started something called the Alliance for Cancer Gene Therapy, and they put out and gave two $1 million grants in 2004. One was to Michelle Satellite Memorial, and one was to me. That funded our trial. Without that, we would have never done what we did. And it that's funded, just a private, yeah, uh, affluent was a, person. Exactly. And he's still, and, and now there's a Bruce Levine, is my colleague who made the beads for my night. He's the Barbara and Edward Netter professor here, so they donate money to us. I see. Okay. All with the idea that this is, you know, it was really uh, very forward thinking because there was no gene therapy industry then. Yeah. And what had happened was, you have to remember, was in 1999, there, there were efforts at gene therapy. And then Jesse Gelsinger died on this trial here at Penn. Exactly. Yeah. And that shut it down for years, years, it, years and years. And, and basically, people thought there was no commercial pathway to cell and gene therapy. Yeah. So that I mean, so that we had no biotech or 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 pharma support until then. We had three patients treated courtesy of the netters donation and also support from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Okay. So this, I'm curious about this because I don't really know how this works. These early patients of yours, are they, they're cleared by the FDA to be in a trial, even though there's no, yeah. um, there's yeah, no so company I, behind it. There's no, no I, mean, how, I was a sponsor. I was a company. So you have to have an IND, yeah. investigational new drug application, yeah, which I yeah. did, which specified autologous T cells modified with our beads that had CD28 immobilized and a lentiviral vector that we made on a contract with, uh, was back then it was called lentigen, uh -huh. oral drop, drop. So we had a GMP lentiviral vector, the beads, which I had to make and show were GMP, you know, past FDA standards. And then the, the T cells, which we manufactured in my small GMP facility back then in, yep. in two, 2010. So that was the IND and we got IRB approval of the protocol and then, so it was all a single center study with no pharma, no biotech invest. Uh, so, and then, I, I think my question is, you know, normally the FDA will say, "Well, we'd like to see a trial that has X a number of patients in it, so you can actually see what yeah. side effects there are." But there's no way you could have afforded that, so you no. had to do. How did they uh, uh, so, agree to it? So, so what happened was, 
we ran out of money after treating three patients because we had only had a small pilot lot of lenoviral vector. Yeah. And we treated three patients in the, the summer and fall of 2010. All three had refractory, you know, chemotherapy, refractory leukemia. All three responded. The, the, this so, was Bill Ludwig, yeah, Emily yeah, Whitehead, and, and, and a third. We, I don't yeah, know. We, we couldn't treat the pediatrics until 2012. So oh, okay. there were three adults. The second was was Doug um, Olson, and he's uh, been his name I can say, and the third I can't say. Okay. Um, but um, they were all they've all, you know, they all, all three out of three responded. It was unprecedented, and and we didn't know if it was going to be durable or not. But I sat, and David Porter was a clinical investigator. He's a professor here. You know, that's he. Unlike me, he's not a mouse doctor. So David <laughs> treated the patients. And, and we had, we sat down because we couldn't do what you said, Brady. We couldn't publish the results because the trial said we needed 15 to 18 patients right. to the, actually make some kind of statistical judgment. What's the safety of this? And we had seen cytokine release syndrome, right. but we had complete remissions of cancer. Yeah. We didn't know if they were going to be durable. So I sat down at our faculty coffee shop with David Porter in February because we, we had now three months survival data no federal funding and and no more virus to treat and make any more patients. We decided, what the hell, we'll just publish these first three patients and see what happens, you know, on an incomplete trial, say it's an interim report. So the New England Journal took our clinical report and this, um, which just showed the clinical results of what happened, you know, CAR T cells, the PK correlates with tumor regression and yeah. science translational medicine took the detailed cytokine analysis and immunophenotype, and they agreed to publish simultaneously on October 11th, 2011. It was a year after our, our infusion. And, and then all hell broke loose. Yeah, exactly. Like, you don't have the I mean, numbers, but the findings are so startling that you had yeah. to know that was going to get attention. We, we did. I mean, and so it had peer review in two strong journals. And, and what was different from previous things, you know, like a vaccine or something, this was where, where we had, you know, it was like action at a distance. I mean, we gave the car cells and then we could follow them because they're genetically modified, yep. show that the peak of the CAR T cells in the blood was when they got a lot of cytokine release and then, and then the tumor melted away. I yep. mean, the first patient, Bill Ludwig, had over five pounds of cancer. And we that, could show that by imaging and all that. Five so when, pounds of of so cancer like, went away with a single infusion. He was five pounds lighter when he when he was. Yeah, and, and I mean all oh that. God. He had huge lymph nodes. His spleen was enlarged. Liver all went away. In fact, this is another one. So I have an email. So so Bill Ludwig was really sick. We didn't know his cytokine release syndrome, and he he got two days after we treated him, he had to go to the ICU. Yeah, and get ventilated and all this. Sick with cytokine storm, and then he basically wakes up twenty three days after we had treated him. And at that point, so he had survived. He was 64 years old. He'd at been in a coma. Point, yeah. The docs, the, he'd had last rites. He had already paid oh for his funeral. Oh, my God. So at that point, the docs, after he wakes up, they decide to, you know, instead of just, you know, keeping his kidneys and dialing the ventilator and stuff like a COVID patient in ICU, they, he woke up and they examined him. They found out all the cancer was gone that had been there in different places. And so then... They do a bone marrow biopsy of the leukemia, which, you know, he had, we had a baseline one, which is in the public. It was completely, his bone marrow is all leukemia. They couldn't see any leukemia. 
And so David Port emails me and says, hey, the <laughs> clinical thing says remission. And I said, I don't believe it, David. Would you please biopsy the other side? Because maybe it had been a patchy thing. Yeah. And they, so that was, so first biopsy was on day 28, no leukemia. On day 31, they repeated the biopsy and the same answer came back, no leukemia. He, it never came back. Now, awful story is, is he can, and, and it's, it's just where we are with these new kinds of target therapy. So he remained in complete remission, came back in August of 2020, and I have a picture of him wearing a mask, you know, no leukemia. And at that point, um, he, he still has car cells. And we've just submitted this for publication, the decade-long follow-up of our patients. And so he still had car cells and B-cell aplasia, which is the one expected long-term side effect because the normal B-cells also will um, be attacked, uh, right. Yep. And, and so we have lots of data that you can, uh, they have their memory plasma cells, which are CD19 negative, and they continue to make their chickenpox antibodies, but they can't make a new response if they have B-cell aplasia. I so, see. So anyway, we saw him in August. He was fine. And then in November, he and his wife got COVID and he, he died in February. You can find oh, his obituary. Oh, my God. You can find his obituary in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Well, I, was, I mean, I'd seen that he was at death's door when the trial started for him. He'd given up everything. Everything yeah. else had failed and he was really, this is his last thing. So you, you got him 10 years. Oh, and he was, it was great. I mean, he's talked to me about his seeing his grandkids that he never would have seen. He, he bought a... This is, I mean, he had thought he was going to die, as I mentioned. He paid for his funeral. And then so he gets a, <laughs> he bought an RV and he and his wife toured the country. All kinds of photos we got going to the Grand Canyon and things like that. I mean, he lived a normal life. Yeah. And then then got snuffed out, you know, with By COVID. COVID right. The, the, is, I was thinking about this because of the, the terrible response that he had, that he was literally his body melting the, the cancer away. But if he had died... That would have been a Jesse Gelsinger, and that would have oh, shut the field down completely. You are completely correct. I mean, there, did you, you think that was one over? Chance, it's, you get one chance to hit a home run on your first trial. Patient, if you have um, if you have a lethal adverse event, you are shut down. I mean, uh, there's no place to hide. <laughs> that, that's, that's it. You're exactly right. So if he had died, I, our protocol would have been closed and it would have been done. And that would have, you, that would have stopped work in this field for who knows how long. I know until, right. And, uh, so we were extraordinarily fortunate to, and then similarly, you know, so that was 2010. We treated Emily Whitehead, our first pediatric patient in April, 2012. And she almost died. Uh, she, you know, the pediatric have actually more severe CRS, uh -huh. the cytokine storm. Storm, yep. I mean, their immune system is is better. And um, we didn't, we dosed on a, um, you know, scaling between body weight and stuff. And it turns out you need less cells for a kid. We didn't know that. And we yep. treated her and she had a really potent response and, and almost died. And, and if that had happened, you know, it would have been game over. Same thing, right. For pediatric. But but there we had, I was, serendipity played a major aspect in her life. Um, uh, so we were measuring cytokines in real time. And she, you know, we treated her on a Tuesday and on Friday she was transferred to ICU with multi-organ failure, was, had kidney failure, was comatose. Oh my God. And, and placed on a ventilator. And but can I, I, can I, 
let me uh -huh. ask you because you'd seen this with Bill. Did you think? Did you think? Well, she might come out of it, or did you think this? I mean, the organ failure. You have to think that's. Yeah, be we we didn't know. I mean, so she was sicker than Bill. I mean, and pediatric patients are or more resilient. But I mean, our our pediatric physician Steve Grupp, who saw him, said he'd never seen a patient that sick yeah. recover. And uh, but uh, my daughter, who was at Harvard then, undergraduate, has juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And, you know, I mentioned my mom has lupus. I have some two autoimmune diseases. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, so as a result, I, I follow what experimental therapies are out there for, you know, autoimmune diseases. And I knew about a drug that had only three months before been FDA approved for arthritis. And it's called, you know, tocilizumab that Roche makes. And it blocks IL-6 receptor signaling. Yeah. And we measured the cytokines and published them in Emily, but I knew about them in real time. Her IL-6 went up a thousandfold above baseline. And so wow. that was action. So I said, I called, and I was actually given a talk in Seattle. And I got the lab results back from my lab. And um, I looked at it. And I said, well, you know what? This IL-6 might be actionable. And I called Steve Grupp and said, why don't you see if you can get it? And it was, you know, it was in the formulary because it had just come on for pediatric arthritis. He got IRB approval. The parents said yes. And so they emergently, and this is true, he went, got to the pharmacy, got the tocilizumab to give to Emily. Steve Grupp told me that when he came into the ICU to treat her with tocilizumab, the ICU docs called him a cowboy. For, for trying for doing yeah. this, yeah, this yeah, rogue thinking what well, yeah, well, given some arthritis drug to someone who's already immunosuppressed and all that, and then she woke up, you know, almost overnight and became, you know, it, it saved her life clearly, and and then Roche sells tocilizumab so that it gets co-labeled with Kimraya, which is sold by Novartis. I mean, it became this real irony that way. Oh, Roche so that's got a whole new, Roche got a whole new market for their drug. <laughs> Based on Novartis, <laughs> and that's that, that serendipity. It, yeah, it almost has never happened. It was co-labeled on oh, the wow. day in August. It was August seventeenth, two thousand seventeen. The uh, FDA approved the first cell and gene therapy, which was Kimraya by Novartis. Yeah. And in the the labeling, it co-labels in the event of uh, cytokine release syndrome that you can give tocilizumab. Wow. Well, they can and thank you for that. Yeah, it, it turned, and now there's all kinds of other uses for it that, that came out. But anyway, that's you know, how it happened. It was serendipity. If she had died, you that know, been. we would, yeah, and yet the first FDA approval was in pediatric and young adult leukemia because oh, they, die, they die faster and it's easier to do the study than in chronic leukemia. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where, where everyone does die, if you look at the textbooks, it says lethal disease, but on average, it takes you 10 years to die. Yeah. So that's an that's an expensive trial. Acute leukemia kills you in three months. The um so I I I saw your uh TED talk and you mentioned Emily Whitehead okay. in the TED talk. Yeah. And yeah. and uh as you're going through it, I could tell that you were still getting choked up about it. <laughs> which which well, I mean I, I got choked up about it. But I the, you know, my daughter is a year I have my youngest daughter of five kids is only a year older than Emily. And Emily's a single uh, an only child. I mean, can you imagine? For the parents, yeah. oh my God, yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't know. I thought I wondered if you were still got choked up because she'd been so sick and it was in such a precarious spot, um, or the miracle that she pulled out of it and is still alive today. I mean, it's all of those. So, 
I, I you know, I'm a dog fancier and, and um, I still get choked up. Um, so I hadn't met her I, for conflict of interest. I never see our patients before therapy. Uh-huh. And, you know, and Stephen Grupp, who's a you know board certified pediatric oncologist, they took care of her. So as she was coming out of the hospital, she came over to meet me. And uh, I'll never forget it. You saved her life. Yeah. And and her parents thanked me. I was just, as I mentioned, you asked me uh, in South Dakota where I got this Lorraine Cross Award. Yeah. Tom Whitehead flew up to meet me for that. Her father. Now she yeah. can't, she's 15 years old at this point, but she, she hasn't been vaccinated. And in fact, she may not respond to the vaccine, which is this issue of B cell pleasure we were mentioning. Yeah. And uh, so Tom sat next to me at, at the award ceremony. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, you, you originally thought you might be a physician in that way. Yeah. But instead you do research, which is translational and you can help, you know, broader amounts of people, but you, that's still quite a personal relationship with oh, that, it is. that child. Yeah. Yeah, and I can say it was the same thing with Bill Ludwig and initial leukemia adult patients we treated. So yeah. it's very different than in a pharma. If you make it a drug in a vial, that maybe the medicinal chemist who discovers a new kind of a matinib or whatever kinase inhibitor, yeah, they never see the patients really. In and this case, we personally make it. I mean, they get taken into my lab. And my technicians and, and, you know, people who do the gene transduction and stuff personally handle the cells and deliver it to the room. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, so it's like a very different, I think, a very unique situation. And I've been, you know, of anything that could be, it, it's hard to imagine anything that can top that. As, as far as gratification, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, so I... I I think so. I'm assuming that at some point Novartis sees these papers and goes, hey, we want to be a part of this research that's happening at, at Penn and does this big deal. You know, they set up the Center for Cellular Therapies, the, the whole thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we went from there was zero pharmaceutical industry to where the phone was ringing off the hook. And um, and, and we got offers from all three major pharmas. They were interested in licensing the technology. In Novartis, you know, had the real impetus that their leukemia franchise was right. going off patent because of a matinib expiring. And, uh, and, and then we got offered, you know, lots of VC interest on starting a bricks and mortar company. And we decided Novartis, you know, for a lot of reasons, uh, their global scope and we wouldn't have to, I mean, we knew what we had working by that time. Cause this was now, you know, a year Years after later, that yeah. we had a multiple patients, adults and pediatrics who responded. So we knew it was a drug and all it needed was, and, and this is a big lift was the manufacturing at commercial scale. Mm -hmm. And basically Novartis was able to import, they bought a facility that Dendrion had owned in oh. uh, Morris, Morris Plains, New Jersey. Yeah. So it had been purpose built for dendritic cell therapy. And Novartis, uh, you know, took that over and then imported the standard operating procedures we had made in my lab over 20 years before on growing T cells, lenoviral transduction. And then that led to FDA approval only five years after signing that agreement. That's amazing. Yeah, it is really when, and there was, you know, so that was the first commercially approved cellar gene therapy. And, and we, we chose Novartis really because they did have the scale and, and to, 
you know, but uh, to to launch it without starting with a biotech. For the, the for the phase three package, how many how many patients were in that trial? Well, if you go through, and there's a lot of you know, for refractory leukemias, for many indications, fifty to seventy patients has been sufficient. Yeah, uh, you know, for these kind of uh, leukemias and so on. Uh-huh. So uh, that's true for pharmacyclics, you know, with what they made with ibrutinib and and, and uh, all the like uh, ofatumumab and so on. So you don't need a lot of trials. Yep. What they needed to show was that they didn't have a center effect and that they could get the same kind of response rate in, in a multi-center trial as what we got in a single center here in Philadelphia. So that was... The registration trial just re- required independent confirmation of that, and then that they had a manufacturing facility that could pass, you know, for commercial launch rather than our yep. uh, academic, uh, you know, trial at Penn. Right, right. UPenn's come a long way, right? I mean, between Jim Wilson <laughs> and you, you know, you got the Silicon Valley that is sort of like something like thirty startups have spun out of UPenn Research now. Um, yeah. The, the university itself has put aside like $50 million to help seed startups when when they think the research is worth it. In fact, I think they put $5 million into Team Unity, your, your first company. Yeah. And so that's, you've really helped change the landscape there. Penn's come up, you know, it used to be oh. Cambridge, it used to be the Bay Area, now Penn's a real, a real force. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're exactly right, Brady. The, uh, um, you know, I was recruited there in 1999. In fact, Jim Wilson was recruiting me earlier as because I retired from the Navy in 1997. But then my wife was sick. So I stayed on as a civilian and then moved to Penn to really uh, with the mission that in our strategic planning was they wanted to have human immunology. Penn at that point had been a lot of really good basic, you know, immunology, but no, nothing translational. So I was able to establish that infrastructure. And then, you know, Bill Kelly and Jim Wilson had had the vision since the early 90s of gene therapy and that led to Lex Turner and all the things you know about. Yeah. So that was a strategic decision in the early 90s. And then so they had both cell therapy and gene therapy with all the kinds of programs you're aware of. Um, and uh, and then now it's so it's turned out it was a long term investment. And now there's all kinds of innovation coming up. There's, I think, six or seven companies just from my institute of all kinds of new innovation. Um, and by the way, I just want to give a plug. We have a meeting called Silicon Valley too. And uh, I think it's May 7th and 8th. It's There's about a thousand people already registered for this oh. um, um, virtual meeting. Okay, yeah, virtual this year, but possibly. Yeah, in, so it's coming up in May. First, we, we it was in real with over a thousand people uh, attended in 2018. And then now we have this the second meeting, and it's it's all virtual. But um, uh, and it's a nice mixture of industry and, and academic and pharma yeah. with, with uh, on cell therapies and you know in the state of the uh, state of the field. Well, can I can I ask about what led you to to co-found Team Unity? Yeah, well, you know, so Novartis, you know, as I mentioned, ha- has a uh, you know uh, you know a real franchise in in leukemia yeah. because of the matinib and that legacy. And they they uh, made a strategic decision that they would restrict their interest to uh, bone marrow cancers now, at mm-hmm. least initially. And, you know, I have, you know, I've had a long-term research in, 
and solid tumors with CAR T cells. Uh, and so I wanted to pursue that. And we had no, you know, Novartis really wasn't interested in that. So they returned the IP on the solid tumor work that we had done back to the University of Pennsylvania. I see. Okay. And then, then that got spun out, as you mentioned, to Tumunity. Uh, and their focus of Tumunity is solid tumors. Yep. So how and, much time does that take for you now? Is Are you... Well, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, Tumunity has, you know, for instance, the first solid tumor car trial I opened was in prostate cancer. It's an uh -huh. armored, armored car, if you will, where it, it has a dominant negative receptor to TGF-beta, targets the uh, PSMA, which prostate-specific membrane antigen on prostate cancer. And uh -huh. we're just getting ready to publish those phase one results done here at Penn oh. as a single center trial. But Tumunity now has that open at 10 centers. Oh, okay. Which I can never do as an academic here yep. at Penn. So, so Tumunity can do the scale, and they have built their own manufacturing plant uh, about 10 miles uh, west of Penn. And so it's been, it's turned out to be a really good way for things that come out of my lab and the group that we have. There's now about, you know, 20 fac, 28 faculty, I think, down the Center for Cellular Immunotherapies that are all doing some kind of engineered T cell. And we have trials against almost any kind of cancer you can imagine. You know, one of the faculty here has done that. Yeah. And they, they, they license it into many different companies. It's, it's really a completely different landscape than it was, you know, just several years ago. Yeah. And then the, the final thing I, I definitely want to ask about is I know that you're on the board for AC Immune now. Yeah. yeah. That's a completely, I mean, from the outside, it looks like, well, that's, that's ALS, right? I'm sorry, that's <laughs> Alzheimer's. Yeah, well, AC immune actually stands for um, Alzheimer's cancer immune. And, you know, Andrea Pfeiffer, the uh, CEO, you know, studied with Kurt Harris at the National Cancer Institute. It is where she did her postdoc, you know, quite a while ago. Uh -huh. So she knows both cancer and, and then CNS neuroscience. And then we had an unexpected finding, which I didn't mention, that our CAR T cells in all of our leukemia patients go into the brain. I mean, if we do a cerebral spinal, you know, tap intrathecally, we can find T cells in there. So we know we can deliver immune packages and payloads into the brain from the peripheral blood. Antibodies traditionally have a really tough time doing yeah. that. Yeah. So inflammation, I had a paper with John Epstein uh, about a year ago in Nature targeting fibrosis in the heart. And there we, we targeted fibroblast activation protein and the paper in Nature showed we could prevent congestive heart failure in mice. And it turns out in, in for various forms of heart failure in adults, you, if you treat the fibrosis, the heart repairs itself. And, and that's what our mouse models show. Yep. And um, uh, so there may be well big opportunities targeting inflammation in the brain, NLRP3 for instance, and uh, it's this huge molecular complex. And I think we can get reagents there. And whether that will repair Alzheimer's or prevent it, you know, all those things need to be tested. But having novel ways to target inflammation, I think, is really important uh, yeah. for those for, for dementia. I mean, Alzheimer's is like we're always looking for new ways to tackle that. Because yeah, nothing I mean, seems to be have really pegged it yet. No. And. So what, what we do know is inflammation it, it has a big role and how we, and then once you have targets, then you've got to be able to drug them. 
Yeah. And um, I think um, so I'm really interested in working with AC Immune on taking I mean, they have really good targets within NLRP3 in particular and some uh, and and I and I think that may have roles then in the periphery for cancer. You know, there was a really huge finding that Novartis had a few years ago with IL-1 antagonism. And, you know, they did a trial to see if blocking IL-1 and the systemic inflammation would, in people with bad heart disease, would it prevent progression of atherosclerosis and, you know, heart attacks and things. What mm -hmm. they found was there was a huge anti-cancer effect. The trial was large enough that and this was in the New England Journal, that blocking inflammation decreased the diagnosis of cancer. Many of the patients have been smokers and stuff. Oh, cancers so, of all kinds. Yes. Well, lung cancer was a, was the main endpoint in that trial. I see. So that was, I mean, Novartis is targeting IL-1. And it was, you know, it was powered for enough. That was a subgroup analysis. Yeah. So, so there's going to be, you know, there are liquid biopsy techniques and all that diagnosing cancer early, preventing and treating inflammation will be have anti-cancer effects, as well as I think anti, um, you know, uh, effects on dementias. When, when, um, I think maybe this is the last thing I'm going to ask you, but okay. so when okay. you, when you were seeing patients, mm -hmm. did, did you enjoy it the way that you enjoy uh, oh, it? Yes. I mean, you did. Yeah, so it was a big tug of war. I mean, um, you know, I really love patient contact. And my I have a son, one's a PhD and one's an MD. And one sees patients full time and one sees labs full time. And yeah. I had to end up making a choice because as like sports and stuff, things become more specialized. And then my own experience with my wife, I basically... I spent five years taking care of her, and then I never went back to seeing patients. After that, I've I've concentrated on the basic and translational research. So, well, but because you know, of that, you mean because uh, no, of that? Well, also, I wrote the IND, you know, so the investigational do drug that I got to get what became Kamaya was uh -huh. seven hundred pages long. Wow! No, you don't get any grants or papers out of that. Yeah, you have to dedicate a whole lot of time. And so as a tenured professor, I could do that. But there's a lot of people who are qualified to see leukemia patients here at Penn. But I had the kind of unique experience to write, you know, how do you take a T-cell culture thing and then make it into a drug? So I'm more value, you know, if you look at value added, I'm much better writing, you know, INDs and getting new bench experiments into translational trials than I am seeing patients. One-on-one, yep. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. It's one of one versus, as you know, you could maybe do a thousand benefits by, you know, if you have a trial that works at all. Yeah. Um, thank you. I really enjoyed okay. this. Yeah, it was uh, fun talking to you, Brady. Hold on one second. Hold on. All right. That is your first rounders podcast with Carl June. As usual, fully enjoyed myself. I learned a lot. Thanks to Carl for participating in this. I would like to point out that we have a sister podcast. It is called Forum. You can find it by searching Forum and Nature Biotechnology wherever you get your podcasts. We just released a new episode, a roundtable on optogenetics. If you have comments on that podcast, this podcast, or anything that our journal does, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. A measure of thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in this podcast. Uh, I would say, I'd like to say that the positivity rate on COVID-19 tests in New York City 
over the last 14 days, the average, 2%, 2% positivity rate. The vaccines work. Thank you, Moderna. Thank you, Pfizer, J&J, AstraZeneca, everyone else working on COVID-19 vaccines. The city is, um, at least it feels like it's healing. There's a lot of shuttered restaurants, a lot of storefronts boarded up, but at least feels like we are on the way back. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you on the next one, and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.